Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mind the Shifts. My name is Anders Bolling. I'm your host. This episode is something that I have already before published on uh, the blogging platform Medium. So if you want it in writing, in written form, please visit andersbolling.medium.com and you can find it there. This episode is about humankind's most pivotal revolution in the coming decades and centuries, hands down. It is about meaning, future, consciousness, society, and science. Its message is more important than anything I have ever conveyed before. Now, if that doesn't tell the viewer or listener much, which is understandable, I can say that this conclusion goes for most writers and communicators out there. Many feel an emptiness and a lack of purpose before the future. This sense of meaninglessness is basically derived from the dreamlike illusion of separation and death that we've been living in for thousands of years. We've tried to mitigate our fear of death and our feeling of loneliness through the idea that more physical assets or larger social or cultural capital can enhance the quality of life. There are no more land masses to discover on the planet anymore. No one empire or culture can conquer continents and replace the old with something new to give a sense of resets. Humanity is beginning to integrate. Everybody knows about everybody else. Cultures are merging. Technology develops relentlessly, but it is in itself neutral and can't contribute, contribute to any sense of context and meaning. Hence, we have a feeling of, and what now? Artificial intelligence, perhaps? Advanced biotechnology? Out in space? What is the purpose of all that we're doing? My answer, and the answer of ever more others, is that the next leap in our evolution will have to be inward. Possibly the most important leap so far. We can debate new tech, democracy, climate change, all we want, but in comparison with the exploratory journey into consciousness, all such topics pale. It is a journey that will bestow us with two revolutionary insights, that the essence of what is a human being does not die when the body dies, and that we are the creators of our own lives, because consciousness precedes matter. It is a journey that leads to freedom, and many scientists have already jumped on. Already during early childhood, and particularly when we begin school, we're taught that our intuitive experience of a lovingly magical and timeless world is naive and therefore wrong, even dangerous. Why? Because, quote unquote, there is no free lunch in this hard life. But if we're diligent enough to follow the rules of the millennia old matrix that Homo sapiens has built up for ourselves, we might succeed anyway. We're conditioned to trust outer knowledge, work, follow the news, respect formal authorities, and do our duty at the ballot box. The general view on mental health is paradoxical. On the one hand, we're told it's good for us not to stress, but to take time off for ourselves once in a while. On the other hand, 
we're led to understand that this relaxation, this relief is an exception, not real life. When we're discussing how to solve humanity's big problems, it often sounds as though, the, as though we're speaking of you know, technical details, democracy, systems, governing, nations, borders, laws, regulations, enforcement, education. But where are the people? The only thing that's really going on here is that 7.8 billion human beings are here on the planet to experience, think, feel, and create. Why do we have to conceal this basic truth behind administrative smoke and mirrors? Could it be that those who have been in power have realized or at least sensed that they would lose that power if everybody understood that each and every one of us is a brilliant spark of the universe who creates its own terrestrial life? Because then there would, of course, be no need for any priests nor kings. It goes without saying that democracy is better than autocracy. It's one step towards freedom, but an elected elite is still an elite, an archaic residue from a materialist world order. Now, taking our next evolutionary step inward is not woo-woo. It is just as much science as what we define as science today. I mean, how could the sum total of human experience be anything else? In fact, this is all about ancient knowledge. But it's only in our time, I think, that it will be able to break through because it will be understood as science. Which, which all knowledge is, of course. I mean, it's just that our culture has been wearing physicalist blinders. The idea that there is a sharp line between science and spirituality is just that, an idea, a pure mental construct. This imaginary border is such a false description of the state of affairs that it practically is a lie. But we have lived with this construct for so long that few even realize it's possible to question. By the way, every line that's been drawn between different scientific disciplines is also illusory. These lines probably had some purpose during the era of intense searching for detailed knowledge about the outer world. But today we've come so far that it's obvious for every trailblazer that we can get further only if we adopt a holistic view, if we see that everything is connected. Quantum physicists and astrophysicists have long tried to come up with a theory of everything. And nowadays, the notion that over 95% over of the universe consists of so-called dark energy and dark matter, which we can't perceive with earthly senses or gauges in mainstream. I mean, that, that uh, notion is today mainstream. And Einstein's and Weil's daring idea about a unified field, which holds everything together in the universe, is part of today's theory building in physics. What then does this everything consist of? <laughs> it may sound like a stupid question, but I think it needs to be answered to make it clear. It consists of 
every wave of energy, every particle, every drop of water, every human cell, every human being, every planet, every star, and every galaxy, and every parallel universe, if those exist. To psychology, these insights ought to be uncontroversial, but the scientific discipline that deals with our inner world is surprisingly entrenched in the materialist paradigm, which says that the brain is the source of and the explanation for everything we experience. Many psychologists use terms such as soul life without actually meaning what they say. They really mean neurological activity. But there are brilliant exceptions. The pioneer William James suggested already in the 1890s that consciousness stands on its own and that the brain is to be considered a kind of filter, a metaphor that today might be translated into a TV set or a computer connected to the internet. And modern cloud services help enhance the analogy further. Carl Gustav Jung's groundbreaking theories about the collective unconscious were decades ahead of their time. Etzel Cardenia, professor of psychology at Lund University in Sweden, gives this description of the state of play when it comes to how much we know about these things today. Etzel says the following. From a reductionist or materialist standpoint, we don't have any explanation that is even close to being satisfactory to why we're conscious of anything at all. In school, again, our children are, are told that we know this. That's what they're, they hear. We know this. We know that the Big Bang occurred 13.8 billion years ago. We know, say the teachers, that life emerged in a primordial molecular soup where lightning struck, that humans are the result of an incredible long series of chance mutations in an originally simple primate, and that every emotion, thought, and memory are produced by neurons in the brain. But the truth is that this is what conventional science believes based on the signs and circumstances we have found and interpreted in the physical world so far. An explanatory model which accounts for non-physical processes where things that don't seem to be connected are connected which quantum physics tells us. Uh, such a model can explain many things that are incomprehensible within a strictly materialist worldview. The core question here is to answer, uh, to, the, the core question to answer here is what, what philosophers call the hard problem of consciousness. That is, where does consciousness arise and why do we subjectively experience any phenomena at all? Other things that suddenly make sense with such a model are dreams, meaningful synchronicities, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, clairvoyance, telepathy, telepathy, and telekinesis. In fact, even a seemingly trivial phenomenon such as why things happen that nobody has predicted and why what everybody has predicted does not happen. <laughs> uh, I mean, completely unexpected change of events are commonly explained by, you know, simply ascertaining that 
there were too many factors to account for. But shouldn't we have come become a little better at forecasting what's going to happen in this world, considering the giant leaps that science has taken? It appears that we haven't. Let us take a closer look at some contemporary findings that corrode that perceived line between science and spirituality. Okay, first out. When medical science in the 1960s began to be able to resuscitate people who had suffered cardiac arrest, a portal was opened. Now, there have always been stories about people who've died, gone to what they describe as some version of heaven, and then come back to life on earth. But before our time, cases were rare. Since the first successful life-saving efforts in the ICUs, an enormous number of people all over the world have come back to life after longer or shorter periods of cardiac arrest and, even more inter interestingly, a clinically dead brain. Most of these people have no memories from their sojourn in the realm of the dead, so to speak. But a small percentage of them have, and that's enough for us to have today access to thousands of personal accounts of crystal clear memories of conscious experiences during minutes when, according to materialist science, it wouldn't be possible for the brain to produce even hazy dream images. Several studies have been conducted where people with such near-death experiences, NDEs, have been interviewed and followed up. And what the interviewees have in common is the clarity of the, their memories. A feeling that what they experienced was more real than this reality. They say things like, the dream is this physical life, not the other experience. And also a sense of being surrounded by immense love and peacefulness. Many claim they have communicated with the either deceased loved ones or with other beings. In a statistically significant number of cases, brain-dead persons have, after waking up, told about what has occurred or been said in the physical space, things they could not possibly know anything about, sometimes events in the hospital room, sometimes events in locations farther away. Among the most known cases of NDE, neurosurgeon Eben Alexander stands out. He was a natural science-minded religion skeptic when he, back in 2008, suffered a brutal bacterial attack on his brain. And his brain was completely knocked out for nearly a week. The doctors gave Alexander a 2% chance of survival to a life as severely mentally disabled. But... He woke up spontaneously, and a few years later, he wrote a book and began lecturing about the hyper-real heavenly realm that he had been a part of during his time as clinically dead. And uh, cardiologist Pim van Lommel, Dutch cardiologist, he saw so many materialistically inexplicable cases during his career that he decided to conduct a large longitudinal study, which resulted in the book Consciousness Beyond Life, which is a fascinating guide to near-death experiences.
among research institutions, the University of Virginia is particularly worth mentioning. Its Division of Perceptual Studies has done research on the non-physical aspects of consciousness since the 1960s. The founder, Ian Stevenson, and his successor, Jim Tucker, have made great contributions to, to bridge the gap between science and spirituality. Near-death experiences are an important part of the research, uh, but the division has also published fascinating studies of children who tell about past lives. Also in this body of research, there is a small but significant number of provable recounts of concrete details, details which on scrutiny have shown to be correct parts of the lives of actual persons, individuals who undoubtedly have existed and died and about whom these young children could not have informed themselves in any other way. Another institution is the Heart Math Institute in Northern California. It conducts advanced studies on the intelligence of the heart. The physical heart is at least as important an organ as the brain for the interaction between the non-physical and the physical aspects of a human. The strongest magnetic field in the body is generated by the heart. It's a lot stronger than the brain's field. When you connect measuring instruments to subjects who get to look at a series of more or less emotionally strong images, it turns out that the heart's signals come one and a half seconds before the brain's. But what's most astonishing is the following. The heart signals that it receives information about the emotionally challenging image up to five seconds before the computer randomly chooses to show the image on the screen. So the Institute says the following, there is compelling evidence to suggest that the physical heart is coupled to a field of information that is not bound by the classical limits of time and space. Let me say that again. There is compelling evidence to suggest that the physical heart is coupled to a field of information that is not bound by the classical limits of time and space. That's pretty heavy in my view. Phenomena like telepathy, telekinesis, clairvoyance, precognition, and remote viewing are in line with what quantum physics tells us about non-local impact and the notion of a unified field also. Uh, these days, even parapsychologists speak of time as something relative, something malleable, and that we, on some energy level, are in constant contact with what we call the future and what we call the past. Most of us have, in fact, experienced at least some aspect of what's normally labeled as supernatural, like uh, powerful hunches, deeply meaningful coincidences, or dreams that later show to come true. Thus, we are co-creators. We're not victims of circumstances beyond our control. Another thing to mention in this context is the so-called placebo effect. I think it is severely underrated. The research on it ought to be dynamite. In many double-blind studies, more than 30% of the patients who have been given a sugar pill get better just, just by virtue of their conviction 
that they've been given the effective drug. When it comes to pain-killing drugs, the placebo effect is close to 60%. Now, what neuroactivity in the brain could possibly achieve this if the body were merely a randomly assembled flesh robot? In practice, almost all of us know from our own experience that the placebo effect works. I mean, when you're in love, your body feels healthier than ever. And when you're in agony, you feel pain in your stomach and head, or worse. Psychosomatic diseases is an established concept, and yet the placebo effect is still, quote-unquote, a mystery to medical science. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense if it were not for the materialist model that is still the standard. In the second part of this essay, in the next episode, I will both look back into history and gaze forward into the future. I will talk about why we are stuck in this science-spirituality dichotomy. And I will talk about what dramatic changes might await our species. Thank you. Bye.